Welcome to Technology Tangents. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and well, frankly opinionated, but hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Welcome our CTO, Jason Goff. How are you today, Jason? I'm great, Vincent. Glad to have you. Well, listen, I want to dive a little bit into Trustbusters. Not the uh, movie, but uh, <laughs> Google. Google. That's right. Yeah. So recently, the US has filed a lawsuit against Google. This is to really say that they're being anti competitive. This is the combination of their ad selling business, their information that we have from all the G stuff, Gmail, G chat, G everything all over the place all the time. And really how they're leveraging that data, those insights about people to give themselves a, well, allegedly unfair competitive advantage in the marketplace. And Google search and YouTube and. Yeah, I guess those don't actually start with G anymore. You're right. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, like they're going to go to the point potentially of unwinding some deals they've done historically. So sort of unwinding that. But just to kick us off, any initial reaction, any gut visceral reaction when you saw this? Expected? Surprising? You think it's right? Wrong? It's not unexpected. Microsoft and IE and others would would predict that this was coming uh, and maybe coming for others as well besides besides Google. Yeah, I think, you know, they have spent a lot more on lobbying over the past few years. They've been pretty careful about acquisitions, it seems, at least. Again, for me outside, I don't have any information here. But it does seem like they've been more cognizant of that fact. Their core argument, Google's core argument, is that what the government's proposing here they say, quote, DOJ is doubling down on a flawed argument that would slow innovation, raise advertising fees, and make it harder for thousands of small businesses and publishers to grow. So really they're saying like, look, if we weren't as effective at targeting ads and pricing those, which requires all the data to come together, mm-hmm. then the efficacy of said ads would be lower Therefore, the cost per actual acquisition of a new customer or purchase from a customer would it be higher and damage a huge number of, in their case, they say specifically small businesses. I don't know if it's small or big, but businesses across the board. I think of that argument as, look, if we don't do this, then it's only going to be the other big companies that are able to afford and put ads in front of people, right? Because we're not going to know who's interested in, you know, some hand-painted piece of fishing gear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the answer, by the way, for all of you who might sell hand-painted fishing gear is Jason Gotham. That's very me. interested in, in buying that. So shoot him an email at... Uh, Let's don't give out the email address on... <laughs> okay, we won't do it on the spot. But anyway, shoot him an email. How about that? That brings up an interesting question, and that is that is, is this really important to the future of advertising? There's no doubt that over the past, you know, call it 10, 15 years now, we've gotten much better at doing precision marketing, basically understanding what people really care about, what, what they're driven by from both the messaging, what they want to have in terms of content, how to reach them on what platforms, whether it be Facebook or maybe traditional search or something else, email, et cetera. Is it going to be that bad though if we go back? And, and I guess like the real, the second part of that question is, Aren't we going back either way with all of the privacy changes that are going on here? Any, any thoughts there? Well, the online advertising industry is definitely in the midst of a big upheaval, right? And so you're right. Over the years, those companies have gotten really, really good at targeting people with more and more data. And, and, and people are starting to get a little concerned about that. And so there's, 
you know, a lot of trends like, hey, we need to get rid of third party cookies. We're going to start, you know, building these walled gardens. And and so there's just a lot of changes in the end. We should probably get Phil Lockhart, uh, who's the resident expert on this this topic, to really talk through what all of those changes are. And I don't know that anyone has a really good vision of, of how to solve it. I mean, Google has their privacy sandbox projects, that, but they're they're all in proposal. There's a lot of ideas about how it's solved. And, but no one has, I think, a really clear path forward. What I think this is, is actually into a system that is already in, in a lot of turmoil and flux. This is a whole nother monkey wrench that's getting thrown in, in that, you know, well, now there's going to be a lot of, of regulatory issues where the privacy has been one source of those regulatory issues. And now antitrust may be another source of those uh, regulatory issues. And so like, this is one where I'm, really afraid to have any prediction whatsoever because I, there's just so many moving parts and unknowns around each of them. I, I don't really know how it, it's going to shake out. The one thing I, I will say for sure though, is that, you know, companies have to start relying on their own first party data, right? As opposed to expecting someone else to provide data or rely on third party cookies or, or these other m- mechanisms they're going to have to get really good around managing and governing their own data. Yeah, I think that's that's for sure the case right here. If, if you weren't yet convinced, for me at least, this really puts it over the finish line. This is the final nail in the coffin. There is no future in which you can rely on third-party data and third-party service providers to give you the data that you might want about your own customers. It might exist in some form. Again, Google, they're massive. They, of course, have a huge lobbying arm. They're very effective at these things traditionally, the same way Microsoft was back in the day. But regardless, the move towards privacy and privacy-oriented policies from Apple in particular, which, of course, has a huge part of the U.S. market and the world market broadly, just means that there's no there's no alternative. You're going to have to figure it out. And Google's going to have to get a little bit less clever, perhaps, in the way they're leveraging their own data, so that's less they run even more afoul of these trust busters, as it were. So yeah, and I and you know you see predictions like, and the reason I'm I'm kind of very reluctant to give any any is you see people have really good arguments from nothing's going to change to the complete opposite of everything's going to change. I mean, I, there was a great article in Wired where their their statement was, I'm going to go find this real quick. It, it, they said, uh, they say in 2023, we will see regulators and lawmakers around the world make it clear that surveillance capitalism business models based on targeted advertising is no longer acceptable in law or in practice. Like that's a pretty bold statement, right? And so that, it, you know, I don't think that it's going to go entirely away. Uh, I, I do think that it will remain in some form, exactly where in the middle of where we are today, which is seems very invasive to to that, it goes away, we fall. I just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And we've seen regulators, of course, create these laws like GDPR, CCPA, et cetera. Lots of states now within the U.S. have their own legislation to, again, restrict and curtail the use of data. We've also seen for the first time really – Again, GDPR has been around for a while, but we've seen for the first time recently this past year, those being enforced to the tune of billions of dollars for companies. I think it was almost 3 billion euros last year in uh, GDPR enforcements. 
Yeah. I mean, Amazon alone was three quarters of a billion. Meta had about a half billion um, on two separate occasions, three separate occasions, something like that. So anyway, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more enforcement. Companies are going to take this a lot more seriously. And so again, back to the point, you really got to focus on your first party data. If you aren't already, get after it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think the the clean room idea, right, will, is being really... The neutral clean room, you're saying. Right, the neutral clean room is really uh, something that I think a lot of our customers are really uh, digging into and interested in. Is that is that something that will get much of the, the outcome that they want today without some of these privacy considerations? And I do think that is something we will kind of see as a trend on those neutral clean rooms. Yeah, and just if you're not familiar with this term neutral clean room, again, historically what's happened is Google, Facebook, all these companies that have these amazing platforms with lots of user insights, would let you leverage that, but only in their own environment. And you could only take away from that environment aggregates, basically. So you couldn't see what any one person did, but you could see what a group of people did. Or you could target an individual, but only on their platform using their data. So the idea of a neutral clean room is that both, neither party owns it per se. Both parties come to share and collaborate and only take away the bits that they have in the same way that you did historically, but now on both sides as opposed to just one. So that's kind of a big movement that we're seeing in that space is companies now, again, focusing on their first party data, they say, hey, we have a bunch of insights about our customers. We want to leverage those. You have some insights about your customers, and there's some overlap here, and we want to leverage those. But we don't want either side to become unfairly enriched by the other person's insights effectively. Awesome. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Okay. So, Chat. well, sorry. I oh, was there like, one more? Yeah, let me, let me summarize that. Feel uh, free. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's what the last 15 minutes conversation has uh, led to. Has led to Jason doesn't know. All right, fair enough. So switching gears, I want to talk about chat GPT. It's been all over the news for months now, it seems. What's fascinating to me, of course, technology is fascinating to me, but even broader than that, the meta point here is the adoption rate was incredible. I mean, you have, you have schools now who have to institute entirely new academic policies because kids are legitimately just typing prompts into chat and getting an answer and pasting it. Like, that's incredible, really fascinating. We should go at some point into a deeper understanding of how the technology works and why that's fraught with problems, but not today. What's interesting is that the actual underlying technology of chat GPT, this large language model, is not particularly new. Yes, it's a new iteration. Yes, it's a little bit better than the last one, but not even a year ago, chat, or excuse me, GPT-3 came out and had almost the same functionality, virtually the same. Now, it had some edge cases. We have actually gone back and tested some edge cases that we ran into before. Chat GPT seems to have solved some of them, not all, but some of the harder cases it now does. So it's an improvement for sure. But it doesn't seem like a game changer. Like there's nothing fundamentally different between Chat GPT and GPT 3. It was an incremental update, not a, not a transformational update. Yet the adoption in the pro public marketplace has been truly different. And I want to talk about that. My intuition, I'll just start with my guess, and then you can tell me what you think is going on here. My intuition is that it's the actual usability or the accessibility more accurately for the average human who may not know how to program or not how to access some API to actually interact with the model. And it was free. Also, that probably matters too a little bit, but so was GPT-3 in fairness. And that because now you have 12-year-olds who can access just some web browser and ask a, a question in a language they already know, it became like wildly popular. I mean, you could, you would literally see kids, there's all these YouTube videos now, 
where some 12 year old has taken his entire or her entire life savings, you know, thousand dollars, whatever, asked chat GPT to write it some algorithmic trading bot and then deployed the thing and made some money or in some cases lost some money. But either way, like pretty fascinating that we've changed programming across the board for a huge number of tasks into something that any kid can do. And I think that's really, for me, what was fundamentally different. GPT-3 could do a lot of the same stuff. We saw a demo, remember, like this was, I guess, two years ago now when they were on stage at Microsoft right. and how to create Asteroid the game. The difference was though, in that case, you had to actually understand how to hit an API. And maybe that was just too high of a bar. Is that, so anyway, that's my best guess. I don't know what your thoughts are, Jason. I agree. If you go back to uh, the pod we did a few months ago about what are six good practices for machine learning, like our, our number one item on that list was like think about how it gets used, right? And think about the user interface and how people get access to it. Because you know the best models in the world, impossible to access, won't be accessed, right? And I think that that's largely what this one, this release did was add a very intuitive, easy to use interface that could essentially use the model itself to parse questions and give answers, as opposed to someone having to do, go through and figure out how to call the API. Um, I do think, though, it's, it's still super early, it's still super dangerous to me in that it can give an answer, but it it may not be right, you know, and, and because essentially what, you know, chat GPT is doing is looking at all the stuff that's been posted on the internet and summarizing it up and repeating it, you know, parroting it back. Right. And so I was talking to Mike Nygaard, who's the author of release it, you know, very popular technology author and, and speaker. And he told me a story about when it came out, he, he had asked it to write a JavaScript application to you know, generate the Mandelbrot set. And it did it perfectly because there's 10,000 examples on the web of building. By the know, way, I think one of those might be mine. That's yeah, exactly like a complex math course. I took. Yeah. Doing way. that in JavaScript online. And then he asked you to do a slightly different problem. One that there weren't a lot of examples for, and it came out with a very complete, compelling looking piece of code but didn't actually work because it imported all these packages that didn't actually exist. And it, <laughs> it called APIs functions on things that didn't actually exist. And it, but it looked like if you looked at it and be like, wow, that's amazing, but it didn't actually work. And you and I saw this, we saw someone like, you know, using it, Hey, chat GPT, what's two plus two. And it would say four, but if you gave it any real, you know, like two floating point numbers to multiply it, it would come up with an answer, but it'd be wrong, right? Yeah. Because like it just, it's, you know, it sees online in a million places, right? Two plus two equals four. And it's able to parrot that back. You know, it probably, you know, if you pick two random floating point numbers, there's probably no instance of on the web of, you know, where that, that has been multiplied. Although there are probably some where similar numbers have been multiplied and it came up with an answer that looks similar. Right. And, um, so my, my point of all that is it's, it's really amazing, but it's not always correct. And that's why I think there's going to be maybe a pivot back to some, you know, there's some new technologies out there that, you know, we use these large language models and, and have many different ones. We talked about this, having them very purpose built and very specific, but then allowing you to string them together. Right. And, and even make, you know, an API call. So if you were to say like, what's the price of Tesla today? 
chat GPT would know it was trained two months ago. It would come out with a pro- stock price of Tesla. Would it be the right one? Definitely not. But you know, there's some tools coming out where you can say, where it can understand the intent and then allow you to go call the API to Google finance, whatever, what it, what is the uh, price of Tesla and, and insert that in. Yeah, sort like of very Alexa like. Yeah. And that's what I was getting. It, it, it actually, these like newer set of tools actually look like very much like Alexa to me in terms of their structure where you were, you know, Alexa was understanding intent and, and could have, you know, essentially for the lack of a better term, a, a plugin or a module where you could say, okay, you know, you intend to order a pizza. I know how to go, you know, this thing can actually go order a pizza. And I do think the ultimate destination of these models is, and, you know, they're right now they're really expanding out. And I think they probably contract into lots of smaller models that get orchestrated together. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Like the question is, you know, if we go back to physics as an example here, where I think we both spent some of our lives thinking and, and working on these problems, there was this moment in time when we kept coming with those small theories of physics. We're like, oh, well, now we understand how gravity works, or now we understand how relativity works, and oh, we understand how it works in this this domain of really small things or this domain of really big things. But we didn't have a theory that worked across all those domains. And so for a while, I mean, decades were spent on coming up with this unifying theory of physics. The, the sort of premise was, well, we're just not looking at it from the right lens yet. It looks like lots of small individual problems that each have their own solutions. But if we just change our perspective enough, there will be some underlying theory that actually explains all of it in all cases. And we'll have the nice elegance that we love seeing as physicists and mathematicians. Turns out we didn't actually end up there, and I think most people have given up on most of these unifying theories of physics. Maybe some are still working on it, but most have given up. I think that the same question exists for this. Like, will we end up in a place where there is this sort of master algorithm that has sort of the depth and breadth to learn to do virtually every task? Or is there some master algorithm that's actually just an orchestrator and knows how to call some other specialized algorithm in that case? So to your point of Alexa, Alexa is pretty dumb. It has no idea how to order a pizza for you, but it knows when you're trying to order a pizza to go call up the pizza app, Domino's or Pizza Hut or whatever, and ask that app to do the ordering for it. And so those are kind of the two approaches that we've seen in machine learning. And what's been interesting over the past, call it five years, is the community has shifted away from this idea that we must have bespoke proprietary algorithms for everything. So one for chess, one for checkers, one for mario kart or whatever other game you might want to play to a world where recently we've had these algorithms that play multiple games and what's even more interesting than that is that some of these algorithms actually have no idea how to they've never seen some of the games they've been, been asked to play and end up doing remarkably well pretty quickly and so there's been the shift this belief if you will that actually it is possible with the kind of compute that we have today that we could have one that did everything whether or not that turns out to be true I don't know. I'm frankly a bit skeptical. And I think your point about chat GPT and the math in particular is a great example. Well, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical too. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's not that there isn't enough data and large enough model and enough complexity in, in it that we couldn't come up with one big master unif- grand unified modeling <laughs> theory to quick, to, quick, let's trademark this trademark that. <laughs> yeah. But my, my point is like, well, why right remember these things are essentially tools mm-hmm. right and the, you know they're essentially tools to order the pizza or to tell us what the stock price of pizza is or what the weather is today and or, or what you know two 
you know, rational numbers multiplied together are. And if, if we have a very cheap, easy way to do that, like why spend the money on, on building the grand unified model? And again, I'm, I'm a bit of an economist in this, in this regard. And, and I also think it, it always happens in computer science. It's like things always come out and they get bigger and then they get chopped up. Yeah. Well, right. that was going to be my next question is if you think about computer science generally, this same thing has happened, right? I mean, that was the whole It always happens. It happens, you know, the mainframe went to smaller computers, services went to smaller microservices, right? Everything, you know, data stores get, you know, mm -hmm. chopped up into individual data files. It always gets smaller because it's easier to change individual pieces. It's, you know, I think of the car, right, as an example, right? You have a car, it's got a lot of parts, but they're somewhat interchangeable, Right. Like if you have to custom design and build every car, well, then when your car, you know, the water pump goes out, like I don't have just a pump with a, you know, standard size that I can stick in and I make a bunch of them that I put on a lot of different cars. I have to go custom fabricate a water pump for that car. And that's just not cost effective long term. Right. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And I guess you've actually seen this too with, if we say with the car analogy, both with the sort of, parts that they use to design new cars. So again, in the electrification of vehicles, we saw a lot of the traditional car manufacturers kind of lag for a while. And I think a lot of the arguments that I was reading online from analysts was that they were trying to use the off-the-shelf parts they already had. And it was difficult to make an electric car with the off-the-shelf parts, but they were constrained. This was a constraint they had put in the system in the design process because that was good for them for traditional cars. And Tesla basically started from the ground up. So they didn't have anything on the shelf. They didn't have any processes. So they got to start from the ground up. And that seemed to carry over with the electronics too. So again, if you think about how much more efficient Tesla was with the wire harnesses and how many wires they needed and the compute and all of this, because they started with nothing, they were able to do that a little bit more efficiently than the traditional car manufacturer would be able to do it. And I think that that's just a really interesting point. And you've seen those traditional car manufacturers over you know the course of many years now really kind of update what they have and are competing quite effectively, yeah. it would seem. But, but even you know in that example... I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is that all, yes, they, they made a much better wiring harness and much better, you know, braking module. But my guess is that all the Teslas use the same one. Yes. No, I agree. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. They definitely got the efficiencies out of all of that. They're not, they're not, if you take the self-driving module, for example, the right. computer that powers it, it's the same across all the models. Right. And so that kind of, you know, standardization, if you will. And I mean, standardization in terms of like, you know, uh, a nine volt battery is a standard. Sure. Right. And you know, anyone can make it out of any different substance. It's just got to plug into the two little round things with some known resistance and yep. current and exactly. And voltage, which I'm assuming is nine volts. Uh, <laughs> I'm not for sure. Plus or minus I'm, not, I'm a battery chemistry expert, <laughs> but uh, I think that that just allows interoperability and around allows easy replacement. It lowers cost. And, you know, Again, maybe we get better and more complex models for these individual components, but I, I do see something more orchestrated. And again, there are always going to be things that are real time, right? Now, now maybe the models learn to make real time API calls, I guess. But like my well, point is like, why do you want to train a model to make a real time API call? Like someone can write that code in ten minutes and. The other factor of this is it's guaranteed to be, to, <laughs> I shouldn't say guaranteed, but it's more probably correct. The challenge with like asking the model to do it is you don't know if it's the right answer, right? You have to 
know the right answer to know if it's the right answer. And so if, if, you know, with some of these more symbolic processing things, you can test and say like, you know, this is the math library. It calculates numbers correctly. And if I call it, I'm much more reasonably sure that it's right. Yeah, no, I think that that does. And I think just from an efficiency, economic efficiency standpoint, there's good reason to believe that we should at least start with these sub models. For example, Wolfram Alpha has been around for a long time. Mathematica, of course, is the, is the original here. And, it's great at math. It it always gives you the right answer. It doesn't mess up. And they've spent years and years and years with lots of smart people to develop that system. Why would OpenAI want to go recreate that from the ground up? It'd be far smarter to say, oh, this is a math problem. Let me import this library. I think the issue would be importing that library probably has some consequences from a licensing standpoint, mm-hmm. a commercial standpoint, that giving some crazy answer or a really right answer just doesn't. Right. And I think there's also, again, from a size and cost efficiency standpoint, like, you know, there's really good models to predict the weather and there's really good models to do OCR and there's really good models to, you know, or a really interesting model. I don't know how good it is to like see if they can predict protein folds. Mm-hmm. It's like. Seems really good, by the way. Alpha, yeah, alpha folds fold. Seems really good. And so. What is the value in having one model that can do all three of those things? Yeah, like the the argument would be that that there's something that that you know maybe the protein folding piece could learn from the OCR or the the uh, the weather. I don't know if that's the case or not, but my my guess is probably not. And again, why do that? Like, why if we want to make changes to the weather model, why go retrain the protein folding model? I think there's some there's more risk there than potential benefit. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I would say this is, this is again, my perspective. We've talked about this before, but my perspective is this is like peak hype cycle, uh, chat GPT. I think it's really fascinating. It does start to, just the way they made it so available really unlocked a bunch of really cool, innovative ideas from a huge number of people. But we have a lot of problems to figure out ahead of time because to your point, these kids who are using these algorithms to do whatever, homework or otherwise, if they don't know the answer, they have no idea if it's right or wrong. And that's going to have real consequences as you get to Well, and scale. the other point is whether, it, even if it's right, they didn't learn anything. Well, see, that's an interesting philosophical question. I don't know if we're on the same side in this one. I guess this goes back to, should you, should you teach kids how to write or just type is good enough? Like if you know how to type and you know how to read, is that good enough? Do you need to teach cursive anymore because nobody writes in? I don't know. Like th- this gets to like a really interesting question where... If I can effectively be a good, let's just say hypothetically, that there are ways to interact with these types of models in a known reliable way, which we don't have today, but imagine that you could get there. Is it adequate to be to be able to leverage those as a computer scientist or do you have to know the base? This, you know, like I think in computer science school, when you go into this thing, you probably had to learn something about binary and you had to learn something about assembling. You had to learn something about all the foundational elements. Now, day-to-day life, you don't use those things oftentimes. So is it okay to only know the well, abstraction the, layer? I, I think there's a there's a difference between use of something and education, right? I my I think it, I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was C.S. Lewis said that uh, the point of education is to irrigate deserts, not mow down forests, right? Like you're not trying to get the right answer. You're trying to teach people how to think, and I think when you just give people the you know it turns into idiocracy, right? Like you <laughs> don't movie. you don't think you just you know, here's something that gives you the answer. Like now when I'm 
driving home and I know how to read a map. And if I had to, I could pull over and I could read a map. But if I say, Hey Google, how to, you know, get, you know, to this address, that's easy. Mm-hmm. It'd be really good if I knew how to read a map. And I think if you talk about education, right, you really want people to learn the fundamentals. Then you can, you know, I, I want my kids to learn how to multiply, not just how to use a calculator. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know. I, I definitely think education you know, has, and this is getting pretty far from technology at this right, point. Right. But yeah, I was last thing on this, and we'll, and we'll wrap up. But I do think education should should focus heavily on critical thinking. I think it should focus heavily on the idea that you want to learn how to learn. That is, I don't know how to do this thing. I want to learn the technique, skills, processes through which I can go to go become smart about a new topic because that's what's actually really important in the real world. Is like critically analyze something, critically think about that, synthesize data and information from lots of sources and learn how to learn the process of actually learning. The details of what you need to learn, I don't know. I guess I'm more fluid on that than you maybe. Yeah, I, I, I just, I'm worried about it. Getting back to the original topic, which is, you know, it, it's use in business, right? Mm-hmm. The, these large language ones. I do think the interface has made them much more usable. And I do think they'll continue to be used and I think they'll continue to come up with new use cases. And the the bigger that problem space or solution space becomes, the more I think smaller the model and, and purpose driven and point solution that the models will have to become. That's just what we always see. But I do think there's some really interesting technologies that are starting to take that Alexa like approach where they can orchestrate them together. And, and I, I really think that that's going to be, how these things get used long-term. Yeah, what was that paper called you sent me? Symbolic manipulation or something? Oh, yeah. There's a company that, that makes an AI, I won't say the name, but it, it's a, a company that makes an AI product that does allow that kind of Alexa, like it uses these large language models and and then lets you make real-time calls out for for specific data. And um, it's a very interesting uh, tool to me. I, and th- they wrote a paper on, they refer to that as the, the large language model approach versus symbolic pro- symbolic processing, meaning, you know, just what we normally think of as computer programming, right? I, I have symbols right. that, you know, a Turing, it's a Turing machine, right? And and their answer is, like, I think both, you know, they think both are needed and, and that's the software. So that, that I think I'd probably agree with them. Last thing I think worth mentioning here is, I think it's a great lesson to be learned and a great case study for some B-School at some point to cover which is how do you launch a new product? Like at what point during innovation do you launch it to really get the right hype? And I think, again, here's an example where they nailed it. I don't know if it's intentional. Maybe it was. I don't want to you know, say that it wasn't, but they nailed it on chat GPT. I, they, they gave you just enough that it was usable. It was easy. didn't require a, a high bar to figure out how to get going. The creativity was still user-focused. They didn't tell you like, oh, here's how you build a trading bot or here's how you write code or here's how you whatever. They left that to the end users. So it reminds me of this example from, I think it was predictably irrational when Dan and I really talked about this idea that, you know, when they first came out with these boxed cakes, that was basically just add water and good to go. And it turns out that that was the wrong thing to do. That what you really had to do was like remove the dried egg and the oil and whatever else so that you had a few ingredients that you had to add to make you feel like you really made the cake still. And as soon as they did that, they made it actually took it back a little bit, made it a little harder for the end user. It took off and boxed cakes, of course, are wildly popular and we use them a lot. And I think this was the same case. Like it was, it was enough that it was easy. 
but not so much that it was kind of closed off and inhibited innovation and creativity. And so great, great case and a great job to them for the way they launched this. With that, I think we'll wrap it. Thank you so much for listening. For those who would like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at Cridera.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.